Good morning. Our scripture reference today is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. If you would follow along in your copy of God's Word or in the handout. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, And there he put the man with whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Bedellium and ox and stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You may be seated. Would you go with me to uh, the Lord in prayer this morning? Good morning, Father. What a blessing that we can gather together in your name. What an incredible gift that we can approach you with confidence. Life in this present day, in this world in which we live, is seemingly always busy. We have difficulty disciplining ourselves and prioritizing our time. The season we're in is especially busy. I pray for your wisdom and your discernment to prevail upon us, Lord, in our minds and our hearts, that you would guard our lives from trying to do too much, that you would help set our course on the things that you desire, that you would guide us in the ways that reveal your presence and your provision. We thank you for the community in which we live, the comforts that you provide, our standard of living. Lord, it's so, so much greater than in many places around this world. And we pray that you would forgive us when we 
simply default to arrogance and self-obsession. Give us a vision for those who struggle with serious needs. Show us ways that we can steward our blessings to help them. Lord, use our church as a holy oasis of grace in the troubled world. That we have good news available in this bad news world. I pray that you might set our hearts aflame with passion to proclaim it. That you would give us boldness to speak up even as Satan seeks to silence us. What a joy it is to live and serve, Father, here among this people. It's people that belong to you, the Milton Community Church. We're not perfect, but we desire to honor you. We're hungry to make your name known powerfully throughout this community, and even, Lord, to the farthest corners of this world. I pray that you might help us to blaze pathways and build bridges into this community. Equip us, Lord, that we might see our lives as rescue missionaries, seeking the lost for your glory. Now we pray in these moments together that you would renew our love for you, that you would fill us with your love for this broken creation and for seeing your glory reflected in every way. Speak into our lives and make us your faithful image bearers. That indeed all might rise up and praise you and honor you as a holy God. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. In the uh, Enuma Elish which is the Mesopotamian origin of all things, or it's at least their account, their philosophy. Uh, They believe that human beings began as dust that was mixed with the blood of a demon god. That'll get your attention, won't it? Who was killed for treachery against the second generation of gods in that tradition. The creation process, according to this Mesopotamian tradition, fits well with the overall low view of humanity professed by that culture. Humans were created, as they believed, with the express purpose of relieving the lesser gods from the arduous labor of digging irrigation ditches. On the other hand, the Genesis account conforms to the high view of Scripture concerning humanity. Human beings, male and female, were created in the image of God, is what Scripture tells us, for grander purposes, for higher callings. And we get a real introduction to this here in the second chapter of Genesis. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to skip the first three or four verses, and we're going to begin in verse 5. And then we'll come back to the beginning toward the end. Does that confuse you? There are things mentioned here in this passage of Scripture that kind of give us 
indication of what God's designs and purposes and plans are for us. Overall, His design for us. It begins in verse 5, and we see that first and foremost, God created us to be productive. He created us for work. Yes, I said it. We are to work for God. Now, what was creation like? God said that it was very good. But you and I have a difficult time getting our minds around, even trying to imagine what that may have been like. We just simply can't do it justice. Many think of Eden as a paradise. Have you used that word before? But that's a very nondescript way of trying to come up with some imaginative way of thinking about Eden. I don't know. Some people may think when I think of paradise, I think of bright white beaches and uh, aqua blue clear water and someone waiting on you for every need or desire that you have, right? Showing up and saying, can I get you anything? Yeah, I see that hand. Other people feel that way too. Lying in a hammock, maybe swaying in the breeze between two palm trees. That's kind of what we think about when we think about paradise. In April of 2012, Time Magazine ran a cover story titled, Heaven Can't Wait. Why rethinking the hereafter would make the world a better place. In the subsequent issue... Time printed a letter to the editor from a man from Walnut Creek, California. And this is what he said. He said, your story about heaven says that 85% of Americans believe in heaven. That's incredible. But they think of heaven as quiet and peaceful with no need to do anything. That sounds pretty dull to me. What do you do with all that free time? And it goes on forever and forever and forever. Now, such comments reflect many people's views about the afterlife. And maybe even about paradise. The scripture says the Lord planted a garden in Eden. We understand the idea of planting. It's planting season, isn't it? Ladies are planting their flowers uh, would-be farmers, aspiring farmers are planting their seeds and hoping that they grow and produce. But we have little idea about what this means in the context of God planting a garden in Eden. It sounds, reads like a giant greenhouse. There's no rain yet, but it says that there was water, mist, that was rising up and therefore supplying the necessary water for all of what had been created. Kind of a condensation impact taking place. A river flowed, it says, from Eden into the garden. Now, it's interesting here that we think of Eden as the garden, don't we? The garden of Eden. But that's not what the text says. It says God planted a garden in Eden. So Eden is more of a larger geographic area. Maybe Eden was re referring to all of the land on the planet at that time. But God planted this garden, and it's a huge garden. There's a river flowing into it, and once it gets into the garden, it divides into four different rivers. 
So you see, it's a pretty big and lush garden, well watered. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Great story, right? But that's not all. There's more. God put man in the garden to work it and keep it. <laughs> Wait a minute. That doesn't, that doesn't jive with many of our expectations, many of our thoughts about this paradise, right? We think of work as being the curse after sin came upon it. But that's not true. God put man in the garden to work it, to tend it, to take care of it. The work, the curse of work, actually was working against the curse, pushing back against the curse upon all of creation. The earth has been described by some as Adam's workshop and his throne room. Adam and Eve were charged with filling creation, multiplying and filling creation with God's image bearers, and they're instructed to have dominion or rule over everything. They are to govern over all of creation as God's right hands, essentially. They are to fill it, they are to cultivate it, they are to protect it, they are to harvest it, this garden in which God has placed them. So God was given the task of naming all of the animals. So he had physical labor and he had mental labor before him here. Now we think work is bad, but it's not. Even though we live and work under the curse, work has value. Being made in the image of God, we're all designed to work because God was working when he made creation. We're made in his image. Proverbs 14, 23 says, in all toil, there's profit. It's not referring to pay, advantage, blessing. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but mere busybodies. So God set the pattern with his own working to create. And creating man in his image, he has made us to be productive, to be fruitful. Now, it's easy for us to push back away from this, to slide off the tracks so to speak. We can become lazy and useless, preferring comfort and not work, right? We see evidence of that all around us. We also can become obsessed and even become workaholics. We live to work rather than work to live, right? Or work because we've been instructed to operate in this fashion. Work and career can easily become one's identity. It can become an idol in our lives. A place where we're unable to rest and worship and enjoy God. Or we're unwilling to work, worshiping the idleness and the ease. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that you should love all kinds of work. There's some work that's just work, isn't it? But we maybe should evaluate to check our attitudes about work. 
I was taught and expected early on in my life to work. I was given chores that I was supposed to do. I was like most kids. I didn't enjoy doing them. I didn't like doing them. I thought it was punishment. But no one ever explained to me the theology of work. No one ever explained to me how work is designed by God for us to make us purposeful. As I grew older, I can remember even as a kid, my dad, who worked for uh, the government, wasn't allowed to do this very often. This was always what he said, you know, I can't carry you in my company car. You know, that was just forbidden. But I can remember a time or two when he actually slipped me into the car and I went to work with him. Now, I didn't do any labor, but I got to be a part of the process and I got to be with him and I got to watch him and... That was just pretty cool. Even growing older, stronger, expectations, responsibilities increase, aspects of hard work that I don't like or didn't like. But as I've gotten older, I appreciate the benefits of work. That this unique design of something that we labor at, it is hard, it can be difficult, it can be challenging, it stretches us physically, mentally, emotionally, many different ways, and yet there are blessings and gratification that come from it. The location, we're told, of the garden is in the east. Now, Eden means delight, as best as it can be determined from the language, the Hebrew language, delight is the meaning. And two of these rivers are still with us today. We recognize their names. And even though things have certainly changed, the flood and other things have probably caused some certain things to change and shift, but we still know exactly, or approximately I should say, where this garden was planted. It was right there, eastern Turkey, the Central Asia area, somewhere in that proximity. We're talking about the Garden of Eden and that it was real. This tells us it was real. This is not a myth. It's actual history. It also tells us as we think about Moses writing this at God's instruction. He's recounting this for his people and think about the timing. They've come out of Egypt and they're in the middle of where? The desert, the wilderness. It's hot. Many of you have probably been there along that southern area, moving from the Sinai Peninsula over around to what is uh, the Jordan area now. But at that time, we don't know exactly what it was like, but if you travel there now, you see it's just hot and dusty and sandy and rocky. You know, it's hard to find a tree that produces any shade. Water's not plentiful. And so as Moses was sharing this with his people, what's he doing? He's showing them who God is and all his supply and all of his bounty as he's Painting this picture of this garden, four huge rivers, sustaining the life and the vegetation, the foliage and all the fruitfulness there. 
These people every day were expecting God, trusting God to provide manna like dew on the ground in the morning that they would pick up and eat. Moses is talking about the very beginning, this Garden of Eden that God spoke into existence. And there were There was a garden, this vast, huge garden that was filled with all this and fruits and vegetables and things that were tasty to eat. Not only plentiful, but varied in great detail. Colossians 3, 23, 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. I think as Moses was painting this picture for his people out in that hot desert, he's showing them who God is and what God has in store for them. It certainly had to be a great encouragement as they trusted God to provide in this promised land that they were moving toward. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His what? handiwork his work we have been formed and made by God who works and he has made work that proclaims and reflects his glory and so too does he do the same in and through us in all that we do now if you think about this carefully and honestly it should change our attitudes and our expectations about going to work tomorrow shouldn't it That God has made us to be productive. He's given us tasks and assignments and responsibilities, even now in this fallen world, in this broken world. Through His work and His creating, His existence and greatness has been revealed. And work shows something. Work shows something about the person who's working. Does it not? I never understood this early on. Work shows something, actually many things, about the one who is working. It reveals character. For one who works honestly, even when his boss is not watching him, even when his boss is not around, who's doing work well, earning a day's pay for a day's work. It reveals motivations. Why are you working? Because you have to? Because no one's going to supply you with provisions to live, food, shelter, unless you work for it? Or because you want to? Because you understand the productive process? It reveals skills in people. Uh, You saw the uh, skills of Dan and Rachel up here and Kyle and Bob playing music instruments this morning. You saw and heard the musical abilities of of the webs of Eric and Cindy as they sang. And you may have heard someone next to you that sings well. Again, evidence of them, shall we say, working, but honoring God, worshiping God with what we have. Maybe you have skills in woodworking or masonry or as a surgeon or a nurse. 
These reveal the glory of God at work in you. About abilities, creativity, organization, you're physically strong. Or personality traits, you're friendly, you're an extrovert, you're a people pleaser, you're a critical thinker, whatever it may be. These things that come maybe easier to some than others, but they reveal how God has built you and wired you and experienced you and prepared you for the tasks and assignments that He places before you. And all are designed not only to reveal these things in you, but to express His glory for those who are believers, who belong to Him. Everything we are serves to exalt and glorify Him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whatever you do, in everything you do, do all for what? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. He created us, made us for productivity, for work. He also created us that we might demonstrate faithfulness to God. So He's put us here in the garden. He put Adam and Eve there in the garden. He's made us and put us here in this world to be productive for him, that he might be glorified in and through us, but also that we might demonstrate faithfulness to him. Adam was placed in the garden to worship God by serving and obeying him. The Westminster Larger Catechism says, what is the chief and highest end of man? And answers, to glorify and fully to enjoy God forever. The garden is filled with growing things, food producing, plants and trees. In the garden, God is going to test Adam and Eve. Two trees are mentioned. The first tree, the tree of life. It has prominence. It's mentioned first. It's in the midst. It's literally in the center of the garden. The very heart of the garden. The second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Its location is not known, though most assume that it was right next door to the tree of life. That it was just as prominent. James Boyce says the presence of this second tree, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would have reminded Adam that he was not his own God. That he was responsible at all times to his maker. God gives Adam a command, a warning. Don't eat of this tree. Everything else you need in this world, everything else that you need is provided for you. It's available to you. All food, everything you need is here for you. But if you take and eat from this one tree, you will die. Now, we know too well what death means. It abounds in our world today. You can hardly pick up a newspaper or go to a news site without seeing something that is just heartrending going on. Another mass shooting was the first thing I saw this morning when I looked at the news feed. We're very well acquainted with death. The reason 
that we're well acquainted with death is because of Adam, Adam's disobedience to God. That Adam and Eve didn't take God at His word, but doubted His word and took from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they brought sin into this world. There's physical death that began immediately, but wasn't evident immediately. It's slower to progress. And then there's spiritual death that did occur immediately as God separated Himself from them. The fellowship, the communion with God that man enjoyed in those early days of the creation was lost. It was forfeited. The place of being vice-regent, of governing over creation, was lost at that moment. Man did not have what he needed to govern well. He forfeited, so to speak, to Satan. You know, most people are universalists, I've come to find. Everyone believes they're going to heaven. They're going to back to the presence of God. They're, when they leave this world, they believe they're going to a better place. Well, these people are not reading the Bible that I read. Because the Bible is very clear that unless you have believed the gospel, the repented of sin, of the fall of man that occurred through Adam and that each one of us demonstrates and expresses through the sin that plagues us day by day. Unless you believe the gospel that Christ came to die in place, in our place before God's holy justice and believe that he arose from the dead and we have trusted in that, repented of our sin and put our trust in him. Unless you believe that gospel, you're not going to the heaven described in Scripture. You're not going to a better place. You're going to a worse place. This is what the Bible says. You can take New Ageism and Eastern mysticism and all those isms out there that are telling you that, you know, you get reincarnated to another opportunity and you can just throw those out the window because God hasn't said it. God said you get one crack at this. One shot. This is it. And what you do with the gospel, you will be held responsible for. You're already going to be held responsible for sin. You're going to be held responsible for sin. And the same warning that God gave to Adam is applied to each and every one of us. If you sin, you're going to die apart from God without his presence. You're going to face his judgment for all of eternity. Not my words, his He's not going to change that, but by one way, by providing a Savior, a rescuer, a substitutionary atonement. It's the only way we can be forgiven. It's the only way we can be restored. It's the only way that a broken creation can be renewed again. Scripture has a lot to say about trees. When I think of these two trees, I can't help but think about the connections throughout the Scripture. 
You remember when Abram came to the Canaan land, he came to the promised land, and he didn't stay long. He faced a famine, and so in his own wisdom, he decided to go down to Egypt, and he got in trouble down there, and essentially Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt because he lied to him and got him in trouble. And when he went back up to Canaan, he began to prosper, and it said that he and Lot had to separate because they were putting too much wear and tear on the land. So Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah. But you remember where Abram went? It says that he ended up at the Oaks of Mamre. I'm thinking about that, and I'm reading that, and I'm going, wow, that's a God giving him a, a reminder of his wonderful, lush provision. Because it's an arid climate, an arid climate. And that's where he ended up. And God sending him a sign, a message, and saying, listen, trust me, lean into me, I will provide for you, I'm faithful, I can do all this for you. You remember when Elijah ran from Ahab and Jezebel after the scene on Mount Carmel where so many of the false prophets were killed, and he was confused and wanting to die because the people didn't repent instantly, and he also wanted God's presence, but He feared for his life, so he ran and he ran and he ran deep within the wilderness, and the Scripture says that he stumbled down and found himself under a broom tree, a scraggly broom tree. Can't even produce much shade. It's so thin and scraggly. It didn't offer him what he needed or what he wanted, but that's where God found him. Jesus encountered an unproductive fig tree. Do you remember that? It was a depiction of the nation of Israel. And because it was unproductive, he cursed it and it died instantly. The psalmist uses a tree to portray a godly man in Psalm 1. Planted by the river. Lush in its foliage. Green. Productive. Jesus talked about healthy trees in Matthew 7, 17 through 19. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Jesus was crucified on a tree. A tree of reproach to save us from our sin. And there he satisfied the wrath of God. And made atonement for sinners like you and me. And as Nathan showed you earlier, Revelation 22, we see the river of life. And on either side of the river of life, the tree of life. The tree of life. Twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each and every month. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's interesting to me, Adam lost his battle in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus won the ultimate battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he humbled himself to the Father's will to suffer and die in our place. By his death and resurrection, we can once again know communion with God. And so I take you back to the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 2 is more detailed account of what took place in chapter 1, which is a broader overview. But at the end of chapter 1, we see and read where 
God finished creation and he rested. We find repeating statements here early on. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's a beautiful description A beautiful picture of the finished creation. God said, it's very good. It's very good. He rested. He blessed. He made it holy. For God to bless means that he bestows favor upon it. Satisfaction. Jesus used this same idea when he was talking about his people in Matthew chapter 5. Remember? And he said, blessed are you. When others persecute you for my name's sake, blessed are you when you mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are sorrowful. He's not talking about material wealth, but he's talking about a deep, joy-filled contentment that cannot be shaken by anything. Not by poverty, not by grief, not by famine or persecution or war or any other trouble on this broken planet. Now, from a human perspective, the people in the Beatitudes, they're not blessed, are they? They're not prospering. How do we prosper when we mourn? How do we prosper when we're grieving? How do we prosper when we're persecuted? But God is present with them through these things that they face. So they are blessed. They are blessed by the communion that we have with Him. I will not leave you or forsake you, He says. I will not abandon you. And everything that you need, you have in me. Everything you need, you have in me. Don't mind the physical brokenness around you. In me, you have all that you need. Through these encounters, we are edified and sanctified. We're stretched so that we might become less dependent upon these physical things and more dependent upon God who spoke it all into being to begin with. We're weaned, separated from false gods or idols in this world. And we learn contentment in Yahweh. God's blessing means His best for creation, for His creatures. He could have ignored the sin that they committed, but He didn't. Instead, He began working again. He began working to restore, to renew, to remake creation in all of its splendor. And He's still working to do just that. He began the redemptive work by calling out people, his people, Israel, that prepared the way for Messiah, who would be the Savior, who would die a substitutionary death for us on the cross in order to draw us unto himself. Jesus said in John 8, 28 and 29, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish what? His work. 
John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just that because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. 638, I have come down from heaven to do my, not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. What is it? The work that the Father gave him to do. This is a triumphant shout from the Lord. Not one of despair, not one of defeat, but of triumph. Luke 19, I'm sorry, John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is what? Finished. Tetelestai. It is accomplished. The work is accomplished. God spoke creation into being and got to that seventh day and he said, it's very good. And he rested and he sanctified that day as he rested. But sin brought in this new opportunity, this work of new creation, recreation, redemption. And there on the cross, Jesus said again, it is finished. It's completed. Hebrews 1, 3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification of, for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Tradition says that when Buddha died, His last words were, Strive without ceasing. But when Jesus died, he said, I have done it. Religion says, do more, be more. But Jesus says, receive all that I have accomplished for you. I have achieved it. This is all you need. This is what we remember and celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. The wine reminds us of his precious blood that he shed for us. On the cross. The bread reminds us of his body that was beaten, that suffered in our place for sin. The table reminds us that Jesus took our punishment and death for sin. And at the table, we're reminded that Jesus finished the atonement for us. At the table, we're reminded and we rejoice in the fact that Christ is new life, He is new creation. What's broken today has already been changed at the cross. And one day we will see it manifested in all of its glory. The table reminds us of this. The table is open to anyone who believes and applies the gospel. Anyone who repents of sin and trusts in this finished work of Jesus. Anyone who has believed, repented, trusted, and been scripturally baptized, is welcome to the table. Anyone who is a member of this fellowship and in good standing, or anyone who is a member of a fellow church of like faith and practice and in good standing, is welcome at the Lord's table. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. And as we sing, I invite you to come and get wine and bread and return to your seat. And there, Pastor Nathan will come and lead us in taking the supper 
together. So let us go to the Lord at this time and examine our hearts that we might come to the table worthily in His honor and His glory. Father, we thank You and praise You for who You are. We thank You for the good news of the gospel that belongs to those who will turn to You in faith. Lord, what a joyous picture it is. This story, Lord, your story defies our imagination. We ask you this morning to examine our hearts, to examine our lives. If there be one among us who does not know you as Savior, I pray that even now your Spirit brings conviction and draws them unto yourself, gives them new life, life that is eternal, life that is justified in Christ. For those of us, Lord, who have trusted you, that you would search our hearts and search out any ill will, any sin that we continue to harbor and guard and protect, and that you would bring it to our attention, that we might confess it to you, that we might be in communion with you. For your glory, Lord, for our continued sanctification. Bless, Lord, the juice, the bread, as we think of your glorious sacrifice for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.